to begin in verse 25, Luke chapter 21. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 25, but this morning we're looking at a subject that I don't know that there is a more highly disputed or debated subject among believers, among Christians, and that is the return of Christ. One of my concerns for the church, and even myself at times, if you listen to enough preachers on television and radio and church services, you end up with a bunch of different views of the end times. And if you're not careful, you end up with views that are impossible to work out because you've listened to person A who has an opinion about whether it's premillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, ah-trib, you know, people have accused me of being pan-millennialist. That means I just think it's all going to pan out in the end. And, and so I don't, this morning I'm not approaching this from the standpoint of setting a date for the return of Christ or, you know, giving you some, you know, timeline through, through history. Now, the problem is, again, if you've listened to enough teaching, and these are people I respect too. Now, there's some hacks on television, some quacks that are preachers, um, but there's a lot of them that I, I respect them. I think they're good Bible teachers. But person A doesn't even agree with person B. So be careful as you study Scripture. Let's focus on the main thing. That's what I want to focus on this morning. But I want to start by telling you, listen, there are 1,845 references to the return of Christ in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to to this great event. In fact, one out of every 30 verses. For every one verse in the Bible concerning Christ first appearing, there are eight verses regarding his second coming. So here's what I want you to leave knowing today. Jesus is coming back. Now, I don't know when it's going to happen. I think it could happen soon. We're not going to set a date. Jesus does say you ought to know the seasons. You ought to know the times and you ought to be prepared. One of the things that was interesting to me when we got to visit the Holy Land was the uh, Eastern Gate or the Gate Beautiful or the Golden Gate. We've got a picture of it right there. That is a picture of the Golden Gate. Do you notice anything interesting about it? It has been sealed. This is the gate that Jesus entered when he came for his triumphal entry. In fact, just to catch you up to date with the scripture that I'm about to read, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. This is the week of his uh, death. This is the Passion Week. This is the week that on Friday Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross. And so he's teaching his disciples. But that's the gate that he entered. Now, it's been sealed. Let me just tell you a little bit of history. In, in A.D. 70, 70 years after the birth of Christ roughly, uh, so about 40 years after the ascension of Christ, uh, Jerusalem was overtaken by the Romans. And... The temple was destroyed, and so it was occupied by the Romans up until about the 4th century, and then the Byzantines took over until about the uh, 7th century, and then from the 7th century to about the 11th century, the Arabs controlled it. Somewhere in that period, are you bored by history? Okay, I, I am a little bit. When I, was, I wish I'd paid better attention when I was in school because I love history now. But uh, back even in seminary, I mean, history just kind of, you know, my eyes glazed over. Just the, I took church history. I made the mistake of taking it in the summertime when it was a three-hours-a-day class instead of a 50-minute-a-day class. And so, you know, I, I just didn't pay good attention. And so I'm learning. I mean, I'm enjoying studying it now. But somewhere in that period of time, 
that the Arabs controlled it, they sealed the gate. And the reason they sealed the gate is they had heard the prophecy that Christ was going to come back through that gate. So they thought, we'll stop that. We'll put up 14 feet of concrete. And then they started burying people in front of the gate because they believed in the Old Testament it talks about the fact that you're not to have anything to do with the remains of a dead person. So they thought, well, we'll put some graves out here in front of it too. That'll stop him. Let me show you the other side of the gate. This is me and Eva pointing at our watch. She actually didn't even have a watch on. <laughs> but she's pretending to point as if to say, when's he coming back? And of course, my thought is, listen, when Jesus gets ready to come back, 14 feet of concrete, 14 feet of rocks and mortar will not stop Jesus from coming through that gate. He's coming through the gate. The interesting thing about the gate is that over at least twice in history, because it's prophesied in Ezekiel that he's going to come through a sealed gate. See, the Arabs that put the gate up didn't read the rest of the Old Testament. They prophesied the fact he's actually the gate's going to be sealed when he comes back. That's in Ezekiel. And so that prophecy, you know, Christians have been going around saying the reason the gate's sealed is it's got to be sealed when he comes back. So at least twice in history, whoever controlled the Temple Mound at that time thought, well, we'll mess everything up. We're going to open the gate. So we're going to take the gate down. Twice in history, date have, dates have been set for the gate to be opened. One of them was at the end of the Six-Day War. They were going to open it on this particular day. That was the end of the Six-Day War, and they lost control of the city, so they didn't get to open the gate. A similar thing happened earlier that they said, well, we're going to mess up prophetic history. We're going to throw the Christians on their ear here that think the gate's going to be sealed when it comes back. We're going to unseal it. Again, some cataclysmic world event happens where the whoever controlled the gate didn't control it a few minutes after they thought they were going to open it. So the gate is sealed in Israel, and that's the golden gate. That's the gate that prophecy tells us that Christ is going to come back through. Let me read now the passage, just three points this morning. The return of Christ in Luke chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28, and let's talk a little bit about uh, just the redemption that is coming. There will be signs in the sun and moons and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men feigning from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Again, to give you the context of this passage, Jesus is in the city. He's, he's teaching right at the foot of the temple. The temple was a huge compound and and these huge rocks, 14, some of them were 14 to 16 feet long that had been cut and brought in to build this temple. It was very ornate. And I honestly think the disciples were just, as Jesus is trying to teach them, the disciples are just sitting there with their mouths wide open looking at the temple. In the beginning of this passage, Jesus says, the temple that you're now looking at, I tell you the truth, there's coming a day when not one stone will be left upon another. Now, when did that happen? A.D. 70. In fact, I believe up until verse 25, the teachings that he's been talking about are things that have taken place. Now, just to give a disclaimer, there's some scholars, some preachers teach that, that all of this has already taken place. They think that verses 25 and following has already occurred, and it occurred in A.D. 70 or sometime since then. I just don't believe that. Most conservative scholars don't believe that, so... That's where we are in verse 25. So everything up until this point, the destruction of the temple has already occurred. The temple's not there anymore. In fact, right now, there is a Muslim shrine 
on the Temple Mount. Uh, so that's what's going on right now. So verse 25 then starts talking about the signs. The disciples, when Jesus says all of these stones, this beautiful ornate temple is going to be destroyed, the disciples said, well, when's this going to happen? Give us some signs, and the word sign means indication. Just give us some indicators of when this is about to take place. So Jesus begins teaching and giving them some indication. And after we get to verse 25, he's talked about what's going to happen shortly, but then he starts prophesying actually uh, his second coming, the return. And he says there's going to be, and really just three, three types of signs. The first one are, is in the sun and the moon and the stars. Literally those things that you look up into the sky and see, there's going to be disturbance there. There's going to be signs there. This is even going to create anxiety among people on earth. So the second thing is you're going to start seeing people on earth that are going to get anxious. There's going to be anxiety. It's that kind of word that when people don't know what to do, when you see stuff happening in the heavens, you realize how small of a dot you are on planet earth, and you get dismayed by that or you get anxious. You get perplexed. The next word is perplexity, literally a state of quandary. This would be the word, if you ever seen somebody that's just wringing their hands because they don't know what to do, that, that's what this is. The, the, this, these kind of cataclysmic things are happening, and people are wringing their hands. In fact, men are fainting from fear. Literally, they are just, because of their fear, they're giving up their breath. They are fainting from fear because of the expectations, apprehensions about things to come. He says, even the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Literally, waver or agitate or rock. That's going to happen. But the biggest sign is, is this. You're going to see the Son of God coming in glory. We don't do a good job translating glory. It is a hard word. It means to render apparent. It means basically to shine a bright light on, to make it apparent. That's one of the meanings of glory. But folks, when Christ comes back, it's going to be glorious. Fill in your own definition. (laughs) He's going to come in the clouds. And how is he going to come? With power and great glory. Now, Jesus says when these things begin, not, not when he returns, but these other things begin, understand that here's what you need to do. You need to straighten up and lift up your head. Now, the picture is that up until this time, the, the Christians, and even everybody now because of what's going on, is kind of stooped over. They're kind of in this woe is me mentality. But as a believer, we don't have to stay there. Our redemption is coming. The Redeemer's coming. Jesus is coming back. And so Jesus says, when you see these things happening, here's what the world's going to do. The world's going to stoop over even further because they can't figure it out. They don't have an explanation for it. They'll try, but it's going to scare them to death. And they're going to be stooped over. Jesus says, no, you unbend. And you lift up your head. Raise up your head. Why? Because it's good news. The Redeemer is coming. The word redemption means ransomed in full. It means the release of payment for a price or the release on payment for a price. See, as believers, right now we're still held hostage. But the payment's already taken place. The ransom's already been paid in full. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the price. He paid the penalty for your sin. You've been bought back with a price. But your Redeemer hasn't come to claim you yet. Yeah, he's claimed you on earth. There's coming a day when he ends it all and he returns. Then he says the signs are recognizable. Jesus comes then from these teachings about the signs to one of his favorite things in the recent days of teaching, and that is parables. 
over the last little bit of his life, of his ministry. We see it in the book of Luke. You really see it in Matthew and Mark and John also. He begins teaching in parables. So he teaches them with the parable of a fig tree. Let me read these verses, verses 29 through 33. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the leaves, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourself that summer is now near. So also, when you see these things happen, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus gives them a great object lesson. He, he teaches them a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he says, all of you have seen fig trees. And one of the ways we know summer is approaching is when the fig tree starts putting out leaves, you know summer's coming. So what he's saying is, when these signs start taking place, it's leaves appearing on a fig tree. And it's inescapable that those leaves appearing mean that summer is coming. And so as summer approaches, recognize that, tells them this parable. Soon put forth it, for, puts forth its leaves, and you know that summer's coming. As I was studying this this week, I thought, you know, and also in Myrtle Beach, we'd follow that up by knowing when the crowds leave, you know summer's over. <laughs> I used to be asked to pray for a thing here called reclaiming the beach. And uh, basically, I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, we thank God that the tourists have come, and we thank God that they've left. So you know at the end of summer, when the crowds start going away, that summer's over. Well, leaves mean it's coming. Tourists leaving means that it's over. That's not in Scripture. I added that part, okay? But he says this, recognize that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. You, you will know that. And then he says this. He says, this generation will not pass away. That particular phrase is very hotly debated among everybody, among, among every preacher. If you read 12 different preachers, you're going to get 15 opinions on what that phrase means. Is he talking about the generation of people that he's talking to right there, that you're not going to pass away till all these things take place? Or does he mean that as soon as these things start taking place, the generation of whom they start taking place in won't pass away until the kingdom of God comes? Or does the word generation, which, which also basically means race or type of people, is, is Jesus simply saying, listen, the type of people, the race that is inhabiting earth, it, it, there's nothing going to happen to them before these things take place. I've heard some people that, you know, think the earth's going to blow up by nuclear attack or something. I had a youth pastor one time say, Rob, we've got to fight this nuclear armament because we're going to destroy the world. My thought is, you're not going to destroy it until God tells you you can destroy it. If he chooses to destroy it that way, that's fine. We do know the earth is going to melt with intense heat. All right? It's going to be passed away. In fact, that's the second thing Jesus teaches them here. He says, listen, everything you see, the beautiful temple is going to be destroyed, and everything on earth is going to pass away. It does not have a permanence. But understand this, my words do. My words will endure. They do have a permanence. You can bank on them. You cannot put your security in the things of this world. The temple or your house or your possessions, you can't put your security there. Why? Because they're going to pass away. But my words will remain. And then the bottom line, and this is where I want to spend the majority of our time and the rest of our time today, and that is this. Okay, so what? Jesus is coming back. He's given us some signs. He says, you're not going to know the day. Although, isn't it interesting that in our society we've had people pick days, you know? 
it's, it continues to happen. I mean, it's happened throughout the 19th and 20th and now 21st century that people have not just picked a month. They've given you a day. There for a while, it was always in October. You know, I don't know why it was always October. It was sometime in the month of October it was going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, the person that has convinced all these people, hey, oh, I made a, an error in calculation. I'm off by one year. It's going to happen next year. <laughs> and then when it doesn't happen next year, and the problem is these people that are buying all that, they sell everything they own, and they go sit on a hilltop so they'll be closer to Jesus, I guess, when he comes back. That's not where Jesus wants us to be. What does Jesus want us to be doing? He wants us to be about doing what he's called us to do, not sitting on a hill somewhere waiting on him to come back. And so he says, be ready. The, sign, the saints will be ready. The signs remind us to be ready. Let me read these last few verses. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So regardless of where you shake down on the views of the end times, whether it's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever, this applies to everybody. If you want to speculate on the other things, fine. But here's what Jesus says to do in the meantime. First of all, be on guard. Literally, to hold your mind towards. Pay attention. How are we going to be on guard? Well, one thing is study Scripture to know what to expect. See, the rest of the world is going to be dismayed, caught off guard, stooped down. But as believers, we're not to be caught off guard. It's not a trap for us. So be on guard and watch out because if you're not on guard, when things happen that you can't explain and when things happen that change the world around you, your hearts can get weighted down. You can get burdened. You can be made heavy. Here's a couple ways it happens. One's with dissipation or drunkenness, literally that hangover that happens after a drunken fit or just that you've kind of just taken your mind out of consciousness by some drug or alcohol that you're putting into your system. Jesus says don't get weighted down by that. And then the other thing is don't get weighted down by the worries of this life, by the cares of the world. Folks, our world is changing. Things that you used to think you could bank on, you can't bank on anymore. Things that you thought were going to be there forever aren't there forever anymore. And Jesus says, don't get weighted down by that, even with the worries of the world. And this is that word that means to draw in different directions. Folks, that is just a beautiful picture of worry, of how your mind is getting pulled and stretched in a million different directions. And Jesus says one of the ways to be on guard is don't allow that to happen. So what do we do when we see things happen? We, we come back to God's Word in a bigger way than we ever have before. And we study God's Word. We put our faith in the fact that, okay, I may not know the day, but I know this. He's coming. And His return is closer today than it's ever been. It was nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus says, I'm coming back. Folks, it's going to be soon. He's coming back. Be ready. He says, for this, the day should not come on you suddenly. It shouldn't rush in forcefully or unexpectedly for you because you've been prepared by understanding what the signs are. I've often thought, and especially living this close to the beach, what must it have been like back in the days maybe when Hurricane Hazel hit or even before that when hurricanes could hit the coast and you had no warning at all, you know? 
It's just one day you're playing golf, you're planting seeds, or what, you know, you're coming home from work, whatever, and the next day it kind of gets cloudy, and you think, well, I think it might rain. The next thing you know, your house got blown away. Well, what do we have now? We have weather maps. We have planes that fly into the eye of the hurricane, and they tell us what the pressure is in there, and they tell us, you know, what the path is. We've seen Danny kind of come up and kind of fade off, and we've had, you know, all these other kind of storms. There's another one out there in the, in the ocean, you know, that's kind of heading this way that they're saying, well, it's probably going to pass off. We have days now to know, typically, days to know that it's coming, and we know that it, there, there's such a thing as hurricanes. Can you imagine what it had been like to, you know, back before the Weather Channel? <laughs> Back when, you know, you just didn't know it was going to hit, but it's been out there churning all that time, and, you know, now it doesn't come on us unexpectedly. We kind of know to expect it. Now, some people still say, well, I'm just going to weather it out. Well, you know, if it's a Category 3 or 4, you might want to think about getting off the coast, batting down the hatches, take protection. Well, Jesus is saying, you're not going to get caught in this trap because it shouldn't hit you unexpectedly. Why? Because you're on guard. You've got your mind engaged. But it's going to come on everybody that dwells on the face of the earth. Everybody is going to be susceptible to this. But us believers ought to know better. The second thing he says is to keep alert. This means to be sleepless or keep awake. This means you've rubbed the sleep out of your eyes. And when you're awake, you're really awake. So you're on the alert at all times. And one of the ways... Again, that we guard, and one of the ways that we're alert is that, first of all, we know for sure that it's a settled fact in our heart that when Christ comes, he's coming for us. He's coming to take us home. He's coming to, so that we can spend eternity with him. So one of the ways to be on alert is to watch out for other people. If there's people within your sphere of influence that don't know Jesus Christ, tell them. Tell them the truth. Tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. Help prepare them so that they're not like the rest of the world that will be caught off guard. And the last thing that he says to do is to pray. To pray. Guard your mind. Be on guard. Rub the sleep out of your eyes. Be alert. And, folks, the world we live in presses us into both of those things, that we kind of get lulled to sleep. Do you ever get so busy sometimes that a week has passed by and it seemed like it was a day? You know, I've always heard the older you get, the faster things spin. Can y'all attest to that? Some of you that are my age or older, you know? Well, be careful that you don't get caught up into the things of this life so that you're caught off guard and you're not alert. You're not hearing God speak. You're not in his word. But instead, pray. Pray. One of the things that I encourage folks to do last week is you don't have to share names necessarily, but I just told them, hey, email us names of people that you're praying for, that, that you're not sure that they know the Lord. Or maybe you know for sure. These people aren't believers, and I want you to join us in praying. So on Tuesdays when we have staff meeting, we're going to pray. I've already gotten some names from several individuals. You're encouraged to continue to do that. You can look on your um, bulletin there and catch our website. Email us. If you don't do email, send us snail mail or uh, send us, <laughs> call us on the telephone. And uh, it's okay if you don't tell us names. That's okay. We're not going to publish these. I'm not going to have a chart up here and say we're praying. I'm not going to meet them out in public and say, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm praying for you because so-and-so said you don't know the Lord. I'm not going to do that. But it's just as God gives us these names of people, we're going to pray for them. So we pray for other people to come to know the Lord. We also pray for ourselves that we'll stay awake and that, we won't, that, and that we'll be on guard and that we will have two things. First of all, that you'll have strength to escape these things. 
One of the ways that we have strength is to know the truth. Folks, if you know that what's happening is just the beginning of the end and you recognize there's coming a day when no matter how bad it gets, there's coming a day when all this is over and we rejoice in the presence of God and we look at this life and realize that it is literally a passing vapor. But one day we'll be with Jesus and that is not a passing vapor. That is eternal. So we pray that we have strength to escape these things We also pray that we have strength to stand before the Son of Man. Folks, how do you stand before the Son of Man? Listen, if you're brought into the presence of God and you don't know Him, you're not going to be standing. You're going to be bowing down and begging for mercy, and it's too late at that point. We stand not in the power of our own strength. We stand not in the the strength of our own goodness. We're not going to stand before God and say, I was pretty good, wasn't I? No, the only way we stand is because we've been bought with a price. We stand guiltless before God, not on our own power, not on our own strength, not on our own deeds and actions, but because Jesus Christ will look at you and say, she's mine, he's mine. So what do we do as we see the end approaching? We make sure our hearts are guarded. We make sure that we're alert. And we make sure that our life is one of prayer. Let's do that right now as we pray together. Father, my prayer this week has been not that I add more confusion to a difficult-to-understand teaching. Jesus, the main thing that I get out of what you taught your disciples was recognize the signs, but don't dwell there. Don't dwell in vain speculations and really arguments with people over when the end is going to come. God, please help us to focus on what we can do. Guard our hearts. I pray that we be so plugged into your word, that we be so plugged into relationship with you, that our hearts would not be caught off guard, that our minds would be alert, that we don't have sleep in our eyes, we're not lulled into a false sense of security, but also that we be men and women of prayer. God, I have to recognize that in most believers' lives, that is one of the areas that we really struggle. So, God, I pray for two things. I pray, one, that we would be men and women of personal prayer. But, God, also I pray that we'd find ourselves praying with other people. God, for the purpose of accountability, but also for the purpose of encouragement, that we would make prayer a point in our life. And, God, we do pray. We look forward. As Paul said to Timothy, He has laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and not to me alone, but to all of those who love His appearing, all of those that look forward to the return of Christ. And God, we do. We thank You that we know it's going to happen. It's coming. It's sooner than ever. I pray that we'd be ready in Jesus' name.